It's December 8th, 1793, Paris. On the Ile de la Cité, a small island on the Seine, just a few meters west of Notre Dame Cathedral, stands the impressive conciergerie. From the outside, it looks like a beautiful Gothic castle. Two tall white towers guard the grand entrance, peeling off into symmetrical buildings with picturesque turrets. Each window is draped in the revolutionary colors of bright red and blue. Long gone is the old flag of France's fallen monarchy. Below, the sparkling waters of the Seine lap gently against the white brick walls. However, this fairy tale exterior is greatly misleading. What goes on inside is, in reality, deeply sinister. Hundreds of miserable prisoners lay in damp, dark cells. All of them have been condemned as traitors of the revolution and now await their impending executions. Today, as dawn creeps over the Seine and pale rays of sunlight spill into the conciergerie, one of its most famous prisoners awaits. Her name is Madame Jeanne Dubarry. Just 24 hours ago, Jeanne was found guilty of being a traitor to the revolution. The court accused her of hiding her vast wealth to dodge taxes and undermine the new regime. This charge is amongst the most severe in revolutionary France. As a result, Jeanne will be taken to the guillotine in a matter of hours. However, in spite of this awful fate, Jeanne is optimistic. She believes there's a way to evade death. In a few minutes, Jeanne plans to meet with members of the Revolutionary Tribunal, the individuals who threw her in the cell, and strike a last-minute bargain. She hopes that if she admits to her crimes and reveals the location of her wealth, a collection of priceless jewels, then the revolutionaries will reverse her sentence. Essentially, she'll trade her fortune for her life. But it's a risky deal and Jean knows it. There's no way of telling how the tribunal will react when she admits to committing treason against the revolution. Will her confession solidify her sentence and send her to the guillotine even sooner than planned? Or will it set her free? Considering that she's already facing death as it is in just a matter of hours and with nowhere else to turn, Jean decides to give it a try. She ties up her long silver hair, wanders over to the basin in the corner of her cell, and splashes cold water onto her face. As she does so, she catches a glimpse of her reflection in the grimy window. It makes her heart ache. Jean's tired, gaunt face reminds her of the cruel irony that her life has come round in full circle. She grew up in the slums of Paris, but spent most of her adult life in the lap of imperial luxury, surrounded by expensive jewels, fine materials, and an abundance of wealth. Yet now, in her final hours, she's been cast back to the Paris of her youth, one characterized by the unmistakable stench of poverty and suffering. With these heartbreaking memories haunting her mind, Jeanne closes her eyes and sends up a final prayer to whoever might be listening. She pleads that the tribunal will accept her deal and set her free. She begs that her confession will save her from certain death. Tears glistening in her violet eyes, she straightens herself up, breathes in a deep sigh, 
and marches towards the door. With the sound of the Seine lapping against the prison walls, Jeanne calls to the guard that she's ready to confess. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Madame Jeanne Dubarry, the infamous mistress of King Louis XV of France. It's about the wealth and luxuries of the Parisian royal court, the insatiable greed that would trigger its downfall, and the restless political climate of revolutionary France. It's about an audacious heist of priceless jewels, one which seemed to benefit more than just the thieves, and a desperate deathbed confession given with the hope of saving a life. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Madame Dubarry is born Jean Becou in August 1743, Paris. Her mother is a seamstress, while the identity of her father remains unknown. Many, however, suspect he's a local monk. Jean's birth is a scandalous one, and as the illegitimate daughter of a poor, unmarried seamstress, she doesn't enjoy an easy start to life. At the age of six years old, she's sent away from home to a strict convent school where she gains a basic education. She remains there for nine long years before finally entering the real world at the age of 15. For a number of years, Jeanne fends for herself. She takes a variety of odd jobs around Paris, selling trinkets on street corners, training as a hairdresser, assisting in shops, before finally settling on a job that will change her life. In 1763, when she's 20 years old, Jeanne finds work at an institution known as the Parc aux Cerfs, translating to the Park of Stags. Run by the notorious Monsieur Jean Dubarry, the organization is a brothel for the aristocratic men of Paris. With her enchanting violet eyes, ringlets of silvery blonde hair and curvy figure, Jeanne quickly makes an impression. She's admired by some of the most powerful, wealthy men in France who shower her in extravagant gifts and pay obscene prices to spend the night together. 
Jeanne's name eventually reaches the pinnacle of French society in 1768, when she catches the attention of 58-year-old King Louis XV. When he sees the 25-year-old in Versailles, he falls under her spell. Louis becomes obsessed. He's determined to have Jeanne for himself. His wife is currently on her deathbed, and his beloved mistress passed away a number of years ago. This means that the esteemed spot of maîtresse en trite, mistress to the king, is up for grabs, and Louis wants no one but Jeanne to take it. However, there's one problem. Rules of the 18th century French court dictate that the king's mistress must be someone who has noble lineage, or at least a vast amount of wealth to her name. Seeing as Jeanne has neither, it would be scandalous for her to become King Louis' concubine. But in a country where the king is second only to God, this requirement is a minor obstacle. In 1768, Louis uses his power to arrange a marriage between Jean Becou and the brother of the Parc Osseau's patron, Count Guillaume Dubarry. Dubarry is a deeply respected name in France. Its lineage can be traced all the way back to the Middle Ages, where each of the four branches of its ancestry were noble. In giving Jeanne this prestigious name, as well as the title Countess, her social position immediately skyrockets. But Count Guillaume will see precious little of his new wife. Now a wealthy member of the French nobility, Countess Jeanne du Barry is free to become mistress to the king. Jeanne du Barry's life in the French royal court begins on April 22, 1769. At once, the 26-year-old is thrust into a world of unimaginable wealth. She's moved into a sprawling apartment on the second floor of the Palais de Versailles, the official residence of the king. Her 14 private rooms spread across 35 meters are filled with more luxuries than she could ever dream of. Her bedroom is lined with fine gold leaf, her fireplace made from bright red marble, and she enjoys hot water on demand from two separate bathrooms, something that's unheard of at this time in France. Each morning, Jeanne is woken up at 9 a.m. with a steaming cup of hot chocolate, dressed in a gown laden with jewels, and taken through the winding staircase leading directly to the chambers of Louis XV. From there, her days pass in a blissful cloud of luxury and privilege. As Louis's love for Jeanne grows, so too does her personal wealth. He regularly gifts his new mistress with expensive jewels, including a diamond necklace estimated at around $14 million. Before long, the jewelry collection of Countess du Barry is the envy of France. But it isn't just lust that Louis XV feels towards Jeanne. The king depends on her, trusts her judgment, and often goes to her for advice, even in matters of state. He regularly consults her when appointing new ministers or letting old ones go, choosing those that Jeanne likes rather than those who are qualified. It's clear to everyone that Jeanne has the ear of the king. This makes her the most influential woman in the whole of France. However, her fairy tale like rise from rags to riches doesn't please everyone. In fact, there are a number of people determined to ruin Jeanne's happily ever after. 
it doesn't take long for rumors about her background to circulate through French court. When aristocrats find out, Jean becomes the center of their cruel, snobbish gossip. Individuals who are envious of her proximity to the king go out of their way to make her feel like an outsider. But perhaps due to the hardships of her youth, Jeanne is made of far stronger stuff than anyone could guess. As the years pass, she fights off numerous challenges from within the French court, defends herself against political plots to oust her, and even rises above the snobbery of young Marie Antoinette, France's future queen. Through it all, Jeanne remains calm, composed, and remarkably optimistic. She firmly believes that her place in France is right next to the king, and no one can change this. As long as Louis XV is alive and well, Jean's position is safe. But that's just the problem. The king is aging fast, and when he's struck down by smallpox in 1774, aged 63, there's a chance he won't make it. Only time will tell what this tragedy might mean for Madame du Barry. But one thing is certain. The higher and faster you rise, the heavier the fall will be. And for Jeanne, someone who's climbed from poverty to palaces, her fall will surely be catastrophic. It's May 3rd, 1774. Today, the mood at Palais de Versailles is a somber one. Despite the clear blue skies and sunshine, the palace's windows are firmly closed. Shadows spill into the dark hallways as word spreads that the king is dying. Inside one of the largest apartments, Jeanne du Barry stands at the side of a single bed. Her eyes are glazed with tears as she looks down at her sick lover, Louis XV. Aged 64, the king of France is on his deathbed. For weeks now, he's been suffering from the deadly smallpox, and Jean has remained firmly by his side. She's tried to nurse him back to health, but there's nothing more anyone can do. Louis himself knows this. Just moments ago, a doctor informed him that he only has a few days left to live. However, while this tragic news has been expected, what happens next is entirely unforeseen. In a surprising move, the dying king announces that he'd like the Countess Jeanne du Barry to leave. But not just leave the room. He wants her out of Paris. This is somewhat understandable. As a deeply religious man, Louis no doubt believes in an afterlife. He's aware that to have a mistress risks contaminating his soul. After all, infidelity is a sin, even for the king. This reasoning doesn't make the decision any less cruel, though. He and Jean have been inseparable for five long, passionate years. To send her away at the moment of his death seems heartless. In no position to challenge the king, Jean obliges. Her heart breaking as she does so, she kisses her dying lover and squeezes his hand before leaving the room. Members of the royal household lead Jeanne away from Versailles and wave her off in a horse-drawn carriage. From here, she's to be taken to the Porte Houdon, a convent in the countryside. It's a moment of tragedy and utter confusion for Jeanne. Not only is her lover facing certain death, but she's being exiled from everything she knows, 
she has no idea what world she's about to enter or how her life will change. On May 10th, 1774, Louis XV dies. History will not be kind to him, and he'll be remembered as an unpopular king, one whose 59-year reign was plagued by financial disaster and fractious foreign affairs. He did, however, manage to live out his full reign on the throne, which is more than can be said for his grandson, Louis XVI, who now inherits the French crown. In the years following Louis XV's death, a new force will spread throughout France, one which threatens not only the new king and crown, but the entire country. Revolution. As 31-year-old Jeanne du Barry settles into her life as an exiled nun, she watches the new king's reign from afar. Louis XVI, the 20-year-old king, attempts to govern a nation that's deeply divided. Although 80% of France's population lives in poverty as peasants and farmers, they're not represented in government. Laws are made only to benefit the middle and upper classes, ensuring money and power remain with the elite. As a result, the gap between the rich and the poor is widening. This is just one of the factors contributing to civil unrest. As the 18th century progresses, Countless other issues stir discontent in France. Some people view the young king as too weak, while others criticize the country's economic policies. Many also complain about poor harvests, constant fighting overseas, and an outdated monarchy. Over the next decade, as Louis XVI grows from a young king into an experienced ruler, he does his best to resolve these conflicts. He repeatedly pushes through policies which he hopes will satisfy his people, but unfortunately, time and time again, they're met with the same criticism. They don't go far enough. As the years pass and the 1780s draw to a close, the divisions in France become more volatile. They finally come to a head on July 14, 1789, when an enraged mob storms the Bastille. Breaking through the fortress's walls, they kill one of the prison guards and chop off his head. Hundreds of angry armed peasants tear through Paris, parading the guard's bloody head on a spike. It's a warning to all who dare deny them any longer. This initial act of violence signifies the start of the revolution. In the months and years that follow, there'll be numerous attacks on the pillars of French society before it finally reaches the monarchy and threatens to destroy it. Times are changing. France is moving away from its traditional values and placing its future on three words which will come to define this period. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. The following is a television casting advertisement from Spotify. Have you ever been the recipient of a deathbed confession? The only person to hear someone's deepest, darkest secret as they took their final breath. Curious to investigate? Spotify is working on a new unscripted docu-series based on the podcast Deathbed Confessions and is looking for family, friends, nurses, journalists, or anyone who has been involved in these situations 
to share their stories. If interested, please submit 150 to 300 words about the confession and your experience to the following email address, castingforshow23 at gmail.com. That's the numbers two and three. Please include your name, age, gender, occupation, relation to the deceased, current city, and phone number as well. If you have a personal connection to a real deathbed confession and want to share it, email castingforshow23 at gmail.com. That's castingforshow23 at gmail.com. The numbers two and three. Thanks for listening. It's 1791, and 15 miles west of the Anarchy of Paris, in a beautiful chateau in Louvesion, Countess Jean Dubarry hides from the violence of the revolution. She's spent the last decade on the expansive estate of the chateau, having left her convent shortly after Louis XV's death. But although 48-year-old Jean has tried to reconstruct the life she had before, taking a string of lovers, attending balls and parties, even she knows this lifestyle can't last much longer. In the face of revolution, the upper class is quickly dissolving. A host of new unwelcome policies have been introduced. Among these are laws which affect Jean's wealth. Tax policies have recently been amended to target the rich. The more capital you have to your name, the more you have to pay. For someone like Jean, who's amassed millions of dollars worth of jewelry and luxury possessions over the years, the taxes she now faces are astronomical. Having lived a life of destitution once already, Jeanne is not prepared to see her riches vanish. She'll need to either reduce her spending or find an additional source of income if she's to cover the hefty tax burden. But her heart sinks at the thought of both options. If only there was another way. Some way to make her taxes miraculously disappear. To reduce her capital, but maintain her wealth. As it turns out, there might just be. In the following days, certain events will take place which seem to play straight into Jean's hands. On the morning of January 11th, 1791, Jean Dubarry wakes up at the Duc de Boisac's mansion in the center of Paris. She spent last night drinking, dancing, and laughing with fellow aristocrats. But this morning doesn't just bring fond memories of the night before. In fact, it brings devastating news. Police officers interrupt Jean's breakfast to inform her that while she was sleeping, her beloved chateau was robbed. They're not certain of the extent of the damage yet, but they're guessing that a large portion of her priceless jewel collection has been taken. Upon hearing this news, Jean is visibly heartbroken. A dainty hand flies up to her mouth as she gasps in dramatic horror and tears spring to her violet eyes. She agrees to travel with officers to Louvision at once, where she'll identify exactly what's missing. In the hours following the jewelry heist, Jean Dubarry releases a pamphlet to the French public. Over eight pages, she details every jewel that's missing and closes pictures of the possessions as well as their monetary values. All in all, 
Jean estimates that around $1.5 million worth of jewelry has been stolen. But publishing the pamphlet is a foolish move to make. At a time when well over half the French population can't afford to feed themselves, it's hugely insensitive. It demonstrates to the lower classes just how out of touch the aristocracy are and accentuates the deep social divide. As such, rather than feeling sympathy for Jean's loss, most feel anger. However, the robbery of Jean Dubarry's famous jewelry does more than ruffle the feathers of the lower classes. It also raises a few eyebrows. You see, when investigators arrive at Louvision, they notice something strange. The crime scene is too perfect. There are countless clues staring right at them. It looks artificial, unnatural, almost as if it's been staged. First, a wooden ladder is propped against the wall of the chateau. It stretches from the frozen ground of the garden all the way up to the second floor window, Jean's bedroom. The window is open and swings gently in the cold morning breeze, revealing a gap wide enough for someone to squeeze through. It's obvious that this is how the thieves entered and exited the chateau. But why have they left everything in place? Why didn't they try to conceal their tracks? The intrigue grows when investigators walk into Jean's room and find a similar scene. Once again, it looks as though someone has deliberately arranged ornaments and furniture to make it appear that a crime took place. Following these observations, authorities become suspicious. They wonder if Jean Dubarry has something to do with the heist. But although their suspicions may be accurate, there's no hard evidence to prove her involvement. For now, at least. Two weeks later, in early February, Jean Dubarry announces that a British man has recovered several of her jewels in London. As such, she is to travel there immediately to verify if they really are hers. But the National Assembly, France's revolutionary governing body, believe this to be suspicious for two reasons. First, the man who claims to have found the jewels, Nathaniel Parker IV, is a known British spy. At this moment in time, Britain is an enemy of France and considered to have counter-revolutionary motives. Anyone with ties to Britain makes French authorities extremely nervous. Second, and perhaps most interestingly, London is becoming a safe haven for people in France known as émigrés, aristocrats fleeing the revolution. Many wealthy men and women are leaving France to settle in London, taking their riches with them. However, being an émigré is illegal. In fact, because the authorities view it as counter-revolutionary, it's a crime punishable by death. So anyone who wants to travel to London for whatever reason has to be creative with their excuses for leaving. Considering this, it's not too far a stretch of the imagination to presume that Jean has arranged to smuggle her jewels into England ahead of her own emigration. This way, her capital will be reduced in France and she won't have to pay such extreme taxes. Also, conveniently, she'll be able to travel to London and set up her life as an émigré. If this really is Jean Dubarry's plan, it seems to have worked so far. But the danger isn't over yet. If anyone discovers that she's staged a heist to evade taxes, the consequences will be extreme. 
it's likely that she'll be put to death. Frustratingly for the authorities, they have no evidence to accuse Jeanne of masterminding this elaborate scheme. So they allow her to travel to London to retrieve her jewels. But they have a plan of their own. As it turns out, Jeanne is not going to London alone. Paranoid about counter-revolutionaries and emigres, French officials send a spy to follow her every move. It's February 16th, 1791. Jeanne du Barry has arrived in London. As she steps off the boat and makes her way through the city, it's as though she's stepped into the past. Gentlemen tip their hats as she walks by. Horse-drawn carriages rattle along cobbled streets. Women in exquisite dresses and hats link arms with smartly dressed men and displays of wealth are everywhere. Here in London, there are no signs of revolution. Although Jeanne claims that the reason for her visit is purely to retrieve her jewels, she doesn't spend much time looking for them. Instead, her movements line up more closely with what the National Assembly suspects, that she's preparing for life as an émigré. From her houses on German Street in Westminster and Berkeley Square in Mayfair, Jeanne embraces the upper-class English lifestyle, partying in the evenings, watching the ballet and opera, and even meeting the king and queen. 300 miles away from the bloody revolution of her home country, she feels completely safe, free to live her old life of luxury. Although this initial visit will last just a few months, Jeanne is already making preparations to settle down in London. She can only pray that the revolutionaries in France don't find out about this gross betrayal. Over the next two years, Jean Dubarry visits London a further three times, always under the guise of retrieving her stolen jewels, and always, though unbeknown to her, followed by a French spy. While in London, her movements are largely the same, attending parties and galas, hosting lavish dinners, and mingling with London's elite. Believing she's completely safe, she lives her old way of life without a worry and doesn't hide her contempt for the revolution. Each time she returns to France, though, to retrieve more possessions from her house and maintain the pretense that these trips are short-term, the political situation is worsening. The king and queen of France are exiled in the summer of 1791, and the infamous reign of terror soon follows. Hundreds of men and women become victims of the guillotine. When Jeanne is in London on her fourth occasion in January 1793, she hears the dreadful news that Louis XVI has been executed. Devastated by this loss, she dresses in black and attends a mourning service, displaying her undying loyalty to the French crown. But this isn't the only bad news to come her way. In March of that year, the National Assembly accuses Jeanne of being an émigré. As such, her chateau in Louvision is sealed, and she's told that if she ever sets foot on French soil, it's possible she'll be arrested. This should be a warning for Jeanne. It should prove to her that it's too dangerous to go back to France. London is where she'll be safe. But Jeanne adores her chateau, as well as the countless possessions still locked inside. As someone drawn to material wealth, wealth that's been so hard to attain, 
Jean is not about to give it up without a fight. And so, in a foolish decision that could cost her everything, Jean waves goodbye to London on March 3rd, 1793, and boards a ship to France. It will be the last time she ever tastes freedom. On September 21st, 1793, Madame Jeanne Dubarry's life as she knows it comes to an end. French authorities finally compile enough evidence against her, and under the new law of suspects, she's arrested by the Committee of Public Safety, a government organization built to protect the revolution. Jean is taken from Louvision and transported to the Saint-Pelagie prison in Paris. French authorities charge her with being a suspect of incivism and aristocracy, meaning they believe she's a traitor to the revolution. During this turbulent period in France, this is a crime punishable by death. As Jeanne nervously awaits her interrogation, revolutionaries storm her chateau. They seize hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of artwork, clothing, and jewelry. This time, though, there is no doubt that the heist is real. Jeanne has no hope of ever seeing the stolen items again. The Committee for Public Safety questions Jeanne in October 1793. Her interrogation is thorough and brutal. They are determined to take her to trial and will leave no stone unturned. In a small, confined cell in the conciergerie, Jeanne Dubarry is grilled about every last detail of her life. Authorities begin by accusing her of being a royalist someone who supports the monarchy and opposes the revolution. They give two reasons for this suspicion. Jeanne's time as a royal mistress and the fact she was seen mourning Louis XVI's death in London. Jeanne counters these claims, but it's clear the authorities don't believe her. Next in the interrogation, Jeanne is accused of being a traitor to the state. Authorities explain that Britain is an enemy of France and, as such, Jean's extended periods of time in London were illegal. When she swears that she was only there to retrieve her stolen possessions, they laugh in her face. By now, they're convinced that the heist was no more than a clever plan, one devised by Jean to reduce her taxes and flee the country. This brings the committee to their penultimate point. They believe that Jean is lying about her capital. They suspect she still has large amounts of jewelry and possessions hidden around her estates and has been evading taxes for years. Although this may be the truth, Jeanne doesn't admit it. She remains steadfast in her story that she only visited London to collect her jewels and, after the robbery in 1791 and the recent attack on her house, she has no more wealth to her name. The final point of interrogation considers Jeanne's relationship with fellow émigrés, Interrogators accuse her of smuggling French aristocrats across the channel and helping them settle into life in London. The committee is able to produce several letters written by Jeanne, which show that she lent substantial amounts of money to two known émigrés. Once again, though, Jeanne calmly deflects this allegation. She answers, I have seen some French people who were in London and whom I knew. It was difficult for me to close my door to them. But for all her words are worth, she might as well stay silent. 
the interrogators believe they have enough evidence to charge her with 16 separate counts of aiding the counter-revolution. Each one of them is punishable by death. Jean Dubarry will now go to trial. Her trial takes place on December 6, 1793. Although she's hired a lawyer and is technically allowed to make a case for her innocence, it's all a facade. It's common knowledge throughout this period in France that once the National Assembly decides you're guilty, there's no hope of proving otherwise. There's even an uncomfortable parallel with the trial of the recently deceased Marie Antoinette, which took place two months ago. Both women, lovers of different kings of France, share the same lawyer. This is surely a sign that Jean will follow Marie Antoinette to the guillotine. On December 7th, after just one day of trial, the Revolutionary Tribunal files its verdict. Countess Jean Dubarry is guilty of being a traitor to the state. Unsurprisingly, her sentence is the same as that handed to the former king and queen of France, as well as hundreds of men and women. Death by the guillotine. Jean Dubarry cannot believe her ears when this merciless sentence is read out. Abandoning the composure she'd shown at trial, she shrieks in terror. As her screams echo through the courtroom, authorities seize her arms and try to lead her away. But Jean falls onto them like a dead weight. She's fainted. It's December 8th, 1793. Midday sunshine spills through the windows of the conciergerie, lighting up its dark, damp cells. In one of the prison's larger rooms, Jean Dubarry stands in front of members of the Revolutionary Tribunal. Her head is aching and her throat is dry. She's been talking for hours now, three to be precise. Under the illusion that officials will spare her life in return for her fortune, she spent the past three hours confessing the secret locations of each and every jewel she owns. Although the tribunal haven't made any promises that this will save her from the guillotine, they have agreed to hear her out. Jean can only hope this is a good sign. And so, since 9 a.m. this morning, she's admitted that diamond necklaces can be found amongst gardening tools, tea sets and waste paper baskets, ruby rings buried in her garden, and a portrait of Louis XV locked in a golden chest. Each one of these items is worth a fortune. Now though, after three long, painful hours, Jeanne is exhausted. Her throat is sore from talking, her memory hazy. She just wants it all to be over. When the clock strikes 12, she looks up to meet the eyes of the officials and nods her head. She claims her confessions are finished. She's given them the location of all of her jewels that she hid in France. As the echo of these words dies and silence fills the room, Jean considers the situation she's in. She has no idea which way her fate will turn. Will her jewels be enough to save her life? Or will they instead confirm her guilt? Suddenly, one of the officials speaks up his voice slicing through Jean's thoughts. He announces that he has one last question to ask. Does Jean know where her stolen jewels are? 
the ones which were allegedly taken to London in 1791. At this question, the tension in the room grows. The importance of Jean's answer cannot be overstated. If she reveals the location of these particular jewels, she'll be admitting to yet another crime. A crime that's far more serious than dodging taxes. It will confirm her position as a counter-revolutionary and émigré. If Jean claims to know where these jewels are, there's a good chance the tribunal will send her straight to the guillotine. But there's also the slightest chance that the officials will be tempted by the offer of more dazzling jewels and agree to let Jean go. There's no way of knowing. As officials wait for Jean's answer, they lean forward in greedy anticipation, none of them daring to utter a single word. Even the frantic scratching of pens on paper stops momentarily. Seconds stretch into minutes. Then Jean looks up and stares back at the man who questioned her. She admits that she does know where these jewels are. In an unexpected turn, she goes one step further and says she can contact London right now and arrange for the jewels to be sent over. However, the moment these words escape her lips, Jean realizes with horror that she's made a fatal error. At once, the room becomes alive with a new type of energy. A twisted, sinister excitement spreads through as the men mutter quickly, frowning and shaking their heads. Admitting to hiding her wealth is one thing, but confessing that she staged a heist and traveled to an enemy country under a pretense is another thing entirely. Judging by the grim atmosphere in the room, Jean's future looks bleak. In her desperate dealing for her life, she's gone too far and has condemned herself to death. It's unlikely that anything can save her now, not even France's most exquisite jewels. Her bargain with the tribunal has transformed into her deathbed confession. Jean's fears are confirmed after a few short minutes. The officials announce that her criminal charges will stand. 50-year-old Jean Dubarry is to be executed today. Minutes after her meeting with the tribunal, Jean's long, silver-blonde hair is cut and her hands tied in ropes. A group of men lead her out of her cell to the conciergerie's courtyard. There, on a small platform in the center of the cobbled square, stands the guillotine, the terrifying instrument which has already taken the lives of so many. Jean struggles against the men's iron grips. She waves her hands frantically, trying to loosen the ropes that bind her tosses her body from one side to the other in a desperate attempt to escape. As the men lead her onto the platform, she screams and shouts in fury. She doesn't care who hears her words, the prison guards, the executioner, or the riotous crowd below. All she cares about is saving her life. The executioner reaches forward and pulls Jean close. With unshaking hands, he wrestles her head into the guillotine and holds it there for a few seconds, as though daring her to resist his grip. But Jean hasn't given up yet. With tears streaking down her face, her body convulsing in sobs, 
she stares at the executioner, willing him to meet her eyes. Then, in a voice thick with tears, she screams out, De grace, Monsieur le Baron, encore un petit moment. Please, Mr. Executioner, just a little while longer. But Jean's wish is not granted. As she continues to cry for mercy, the blade of the guillotine falls onto her neck, and she's silenced. Aged 50 years old, Madame Jean Dubarry is dead. Jean Dubarry's body is tossed into an unmarked grave in the Madeleine Cemetery in Paris. It's the same one where Marie Antoinette was cast just months earlier. But Jean will not be the last person to die under the guillotine's blade. Far from it. As the reign of terror continues to strangle France, more than 17,000 individuals will meet the same fate. It will take the rise of a dictator, the restoration of the monarchy, and republic after republic for the nation to regain the stability it once had. While the names of peasants, aristocrats, and even revolutionaries will eventually be lost to history, the name Jean Dubarry will forever be remembered. No one can forget the controversial life she led, an individual loved and hated in equal measure. Tragically, though, Jean was a woman in the wrong place at the wrong time. She used her beauty and charm to rise through the perils of high society, claiming a place at the side of the king. But her victory came at the very moment of the monarchy's destruction. Jean's death has a sad irony to it. The woman who was shunned and scoffed at by nobles and aristocrats died trying to protect them. She was caught between two worlds, the privilege of the upper classes and the poverty of her birth. And in revolutionary France, this kind of social mobility was viewed as nothing short of traitorous. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet James Allen, a notorious highwayman who stalks the roads of Massachusetts. In 1837, as Allen lays dying in a prison cell, police take little notice of him or his deteriorating condition. But unbeknown to them, Allen harbors several dark secrets. Secrets which could answer the questions the people in Massachusetts have been asking for years. How did Allen escape punishment for so long? And how many crimes was he really responsible for? In a shocking turn of events, Allen will also confess his dying wish, a wish so gruesome and abhorrent it will secure his name in the history of Massachusetts crime. Find out next week on Deathbed Confessions. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 